it can hardly have escaped anyone's notice that we're living through some very divisive times, times of conflict, times of polarisation. But where, ultimately, does opposition come from? Because surely it doesn't arise in its entirety from the ideas and the actions of human beings. Something impels people towards difference and division, self-evidently. Something in the nature of reality permits this to happen maybe even encourages or facilitates it. This seems to be the view of the world that finds expression in the call or key of the Thirty Ethers, a magical invocation dictated by angels to the 16th century magicians John Dee and Edward Kelly. Behold the face of your God, the beginning of comfort, reads a portion of the English translation of this text, whose eyes are the brightness of the heavens, which provided you for the government of the earth and her unspeakable variety, furnishing you with a power of understanding to dispose all things according to the providence of him that sitteth on the holy throne and rose up in the beginning, saying, The earth, let her be governed by her parts, and let there be division in her, that the glory of her may be always drunken and vexed in itself. One season, let it confound another, and let there be no creature upon or within her the same. All her members, let them differ in their qualities, and let there be no one creature equal with another. The reasonable creatures of the earth, let them vex and weed out one another, and the dwelling places, let them forget their names. The work of man and his pomp, let them be defaced. His buildings, let them become caves for the beast of the field. Confound her understanding with darkness. For why? It repenteth me I made man. One while let her be known, and another while a stranger, because she is the bed of a harlot, and the dwelling place of him, that is fallen. From this perspective, the earth is dominated by discord and difference because that's the way it's been devised. Her unspeakable variety has been decreed by God. She is governed by her parts 
the glory of her is always drunken and vexed in itself, completely by design. And this is because, the invocation suggests, human beings have been granted the power of understanding. The description of the world offered in this text is, on the one hand, horrifying, but on the other, in the way it's expressed, also strangely beautiful. And maybe what it's hinting at is the idea that discord, strife, polarity, conflict is a feature of the world due to the power of understanding that human beings have been given. Discrimination. The word discrimination. If we look up its definition in a recent dictionary, the first we'll find is probably the unjust or prejudicial treatment of categories of people. And it's likely that only after this will come what the word formally more commonly used to mean. The recognition and understanding of the difference between one thing and another. On the one hand, then, discrimination can mean prejudice, narrow-mindedness, bias. But on the other hand, it can mean pretty much the opposite, perceptiveness, consideration and clear judgment. Those would be the qualities of Someone who we might describe as having discriminating taste, for instance. Or someone skilled in being able to discriminate between right and wrong. It's odd how a word that implies understanding on the one hand also implies fractiousness on the other. In the word discrimination is the very same dynamic, the very same linkage between perspicacity of understanding and division and conflict as we find in Dee and Kelly's call of the Thirty Ethers. There is a legend, sadly one without any basis in historical fact, it seems, that one of the popes of Rome in the 10th century, in most accounts John VII, was actually female, a female pope became known in popular lore as Pope Joan. The story usually told 
is that she was a talented, extremely gifted scholar who disguised herself as a man in order to rise to high office in the church. The deception passed unnoticed until one day when the Pope was processing through the streets of Rome. Unexpectedly, she went into labour and gave birth in the street to a child. The legend varies in what supposedly happened next. In some versions, Joan is executed for her deception. In other accounts, she's murdered or she dies soon after of natural causes. In any event, the revelation causes scandal and controversy and shock and discord. None of the versions of the story can be traced to a date earlier than the middle of the 13th century. A good 250 years after the events that are supposedly being recorded. Yet the figure of Pope Joan, the female Pope, passed into myth and legend and found her way into the tarot deck as initially the archetypal figure of the Popess, morphing over time into the more recognisable figure she assumes today as the High Priestess. She is a spiritual matriarch, a woman endowed with formidable powers of intellect, associated with an uncommon degree of wisdom, knowledge and understanding, particularly in the realm of esoteric matters. But it's no coincidence that the story of Pope Joan in which the archetype of the High Priestess finds its basis is the story of a woman with great gifts of discrimination who, in the course of developing those gifts to their fullest extent, finds herself discriminated against and being used as the occasion for scandal, conflict and discord. The essence of intellectual life is reflection. When we reflect, we open our minds up to 
receive something. Reflection is the mind's reception of thoughts, ideas, perceptions, feelings. But in order to be able to reflect and to arrive at understanding, we have to recognize a separation between ourselves and the object of our reflection, and a separation between that object and subsequent objects of reflection. In other words, to reflect, to enter into intellectual life, the life of the mind, we have to admit a perspective on the world that is dualistic, that is characterized by differences between things and a sense of separation between them. This leads us into the encounter with the essential core of the archetype of the High Priestess. She is the mistress of intellectual and esoteric understanding and knowledge, but she arrives at that through the necessary encounter with duality in order to know something, in order to understand something, we have to view it as a separate thing, label it, classify it, present it to ourselves as within our minds different from other things. This can be discrimination in its positive sense, but also creates the possibility of discrimination in its negative sense as well. Of course, this is an activity that all of us as human beings are engaged in constantly in different ways. But at certain times in our lives, or confronted with specific situations, it may become very important for us to manage this skillfully. And then, perhaps, it might be helpful to attempt to emulate the lessons that the archetype of the High Priestess has for us, because she's obviously no dissecting scientist. She isn't primarily a figure that delights in division and discord. However, these can be aspects of her shadow side and may all too easily manifest in situations where the wisdom offered by the High Priestess is 
ignored or stifled or perverted. Primarily, she is an archetype who shows us how to deal the most wisely with the experience of duality. She's the one who guides us in dealing in the best way possible with the unspeakable variety of the earth. The High Priestess receives, she reflects. And from that reception and reflection arises the potential for something to grow, something to gestate as other, different, separate from herself. In the legend of Pope Joan, the birth of her baby leads to her downfall. Of course, we're speaking in analogies here, but once the baby makes its appearance in the world, then we see discrimination in the negative sense. The reason the High Priestess remains supreme upon her throne is that she operates in contrast in a realm of potential. In the Rider Waite deck, she's shown seated, seated because she receives, her throne positioned centrally between the pillars of Solomon's temple, on the left the one named Boaz painted black, and on the right painted white, Jakin. Contrast between the pillars represents the notion of duality, difference, separateness, otherness. And she is right between them, receiving us at the entrance to the Temple of Wisdom. Various lunar symbols adorn her because, like the moon, she reflects. On her lap is an open book, a book of knowledge, the wisdom, the understanding that she has arrived at is contained in this book of knowledge. This suggests perhaps that what she arrives at through her inquiry into the realm of spirit remains in the realm of spirit, or at least in the realm of representation of the word. Sometimes, maybe we're in therapy, or maybe we just arrive at an insight by our own accord into a certain situation in our lives or a repeating pattern of behaviour 
and we understand it, we get it. Now we see why we've been doing that thing. But with that understanding often can come a desperate kind of feeling, a thought of, what can I do about this? Often on understanding something we can feel an impulse to follow it up immediately with some kind of action. This can be a moment of danger and this I think is what the High Priestess can warn and guard us against. Sometimes of course if a situation is dangerous or harmful then we need to take action. In that case the archetype of the High Priestess is not the one we should be looking to. She's there to guide us when the impulse to fly into action might be more harmful than taking stock or keeping silent. Her message is perhaps that what we have arrived at through reflection realises its full potential if it remains in the realm of knowledge and understanding, at least for the time being. That can often be the best way to maintain discrimination in its positive sense. Given the dualistic nature of the world, moving from understanding into action will often place us on one side or other of some kind of conflict or controversy. And that opens the possibility of acting from discrimination in its negative sense. The lesson of the High Priestess is not that we should attempt to avoid acting or that non-action is always the best policy. What would be the point of wisdom and knowledge if that were the case? Instead, what she confronts us with is how duality is at once both the basis of reflection, the means by which we arrive at knowledge, but also potentially the source of ignorance. Too much emphasis on the differences between things and we fall into division and conflict. But equally, if we seek to avoid or ignore non-duality, insisting that everything fundamentally is all one thing, then that can be a path to conceit because it ignores the reality of how the world presents itself in our understanding. In the tarot deck devised by Alistair Crowley, the Book of Thoth, the High Priestess is elevated to the form of a goddess. 
the most spiritual form of Isis, writes Crowley, the eternal virgin, the Artemis of the Greeks. She is clothed only in the luminous veil of light. It is important for high initiation to regard light not as the perfect manifestation of the eternal spirit, but rather as the veil which hides that spirit. It does so all the more effectively because of its incomparably dazzling brilliance. Thus, she is light and the body of light. She is the truth behind the veil of light. She is the soul of light. What's being suggested here is that the perspicacity and wisdom of the High Priestess, her brilliant light, paradoxically extends even into the comprehension of the fact that her wisdom is not the absolute wisdom. She is the mistress of understanding and managing duality because she grasps its nature so completely that she goes beyond it. She is the mistress of reflection because of the way that she understands so precisely what reflection is. Bernadette Roberts, born in 1931, was initially a Catholic Carmelite nun who has written extensively about levels of mystical realisation that go beyond non-duality into what she describes as no-self. In one of her books she writes when the mind deliberately tried to look within Instantly the divine centre, the living flame, quietly exploded and vanished. After this, it is never again possible to look within. Not only will the mind no longer function in this reflexive manner, but without a centre there is no within anymore. And without the within, there is no vessel to experience any emptiness. Simply put, there is nothing left to be empty. In another of her books, she describes how this mystical realisation manifested in her daily life. I had been working side by side with an employer for over a year, she writes. We had a good rapport and, I thought, were good friends. One day, in her absence, I made a decision, one that turned out very well for everyone concerned. She said nothing about it. A month or so later, she brought up this decision and told me I had overstepped my place in making it. In mounting tones of anger and nervousness, she verbally tore me apart. By the time she ended, I'd been fired. I watched this phenomenon in silence, without a thought for myself or any need to look within. 
the first concern had been for my friend, who was obviously unhappy. I would have liked to talk with her, but she would not allow a single word. What she describes here is, in some respects, a small incident, a mundane incident. And if we weren't aware of Roberts's practice as a mystic, we might not draw much of a conclusion from it. But what she describes here is perhaps an illustration of how Bernadette Roberts, far more than most people, embodies the archetype of the High Priestess. Imagine standing in front of someone who is verbally tearing us apart. And yet somehow, as Roberts writes, there's no thought for ourselves and no impulse to look within. She describes a state of consciousness that's beyond conflict and beyond self-reflection. mastery of the dynamics of duality perhaps comes in part from having grasped so thoroughly the ineluctable connection between them both. 